This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. I'm going to do my best tonight to give us all chizuk. It's been a very, very tumultuous time for all of us, and dating has certainly been compromised, if not severely challenged. Many people are wondering what would be the best course of action now, and as you know, there's not much to do other than do uh, video dating or telephone conversations, although, in my opinion, it hasn't... Thank you so much. It hasn't really been the best avenue or the best portal in which to date. It's the only one that we have at our disposal. I thought that this time period should really reflect more on our growth and our working on our skill building so that we can be the best daters after this tikufa, after this period is over. So I, I organized a shiur tonight, which will have three components. One will give us chizik, which will be part A. Part B will, will be the toolbox, what I want you to do to become the best daters out there, and part C will be the close in which I give you my, you know, how do I know if this is the right one, and my and a Muna booster, and we'll close with a nice bracha. So we always start a shiur like the old Tanaim did in the days of the Mishnah and the Gemara, and that is like this with a joke. A Jewish town had a shortage of men in marriage, of marriageable age, so they had to import men from other towns. One day a groom-to-be arrived on a train, and two mother-in-laws were there waiting for him, each one claiming ownership of this future chassan. A rabbi was called to solve this dilemma, just like Shlomo. After a few minutes of thought, he said, if you both want the groom, we'll cut him in half and give each one of him a piece. Each one of you will get a piece, a half of that man. To this, one woman replied, if that's the only solution, rabbi, then do what you have to do. The rabbi looked at her aghast and said, Ah, that's the real mother-in-law. So anyway, we started with a joke. But I want to first give uh, a little bit of chizik to the crowd out there. We're going through some very difficult times. And so I want to share a couple of stories with you in which to give us all chizik about how we can navigate these times. A girl tells a story about her and her friend. When they grew up in Poland, their mothers really fed them well. But my, my friend's mother, she writes, took a little too far and got her used to eating unbelievable amounts of food. She didn't notice that her daughter was becoming as big as a house. But it didn't matter, because when the Nazis came, they put us all in the ghetto. It's hard to describe the incredible hunger we suffered in Auschwitz. To my friend's good fortune, because she has a lot of body fat on her, she had a lot of reserves, she was able to withstand it. But guess what? Within a year, she looked just as thin and as scrawny as the rest of us. Then we got, we got really hit hard. The SS men didn't have much to do, they were bored. Their only form of entertainment was unfortunately killing Jews or tormenting them or throwing babies up in the air and shooting them with their machine guns. One of the German officers was an enormously fat woman. One day she stood next to one of us and her friends started laughing at the huge difference in size between this woman and all the other German officers. Even we, the Jewish girls, couldn't help but laugh. Her friends teased her. She ate enough that would have fed the same amount of food the whole camp for a week. But she wasn't offended. So she looks at the Jewish prisoners and she says to them, You hungry? No problem. Pick someone here who will compete with me to see which one of us can eat the most in a contest of eating. If she wins, I'll give you unlimited food for a week. But if I win, she said, I'll starve the whole camp for a month. And when I say starved, I mean I'll search and confiscate all little bits and pieces of moldy bread that I know that you're hiding. So we didn't know what to do, the girl writes. One look at her told us we had no chance. On the other hand, what did we have in terms of alternatives? And then I remembered my dear friend. I made my way over to her and I felt so embarrassed. I told her, perhaps you would be the contestant. I felt really embarrassed to ask her, but I had nothing to lose. I told her, if you win, we'll eat because we're starving and we're dying. And even if the officer wins, at least you'll get a decent meal. 
Our only condition was that the food be kosher, even if the menu was the same. And when the food arrived, we were in for a shock. This was what was placed before each of the contestants. First course was a loaf of bread with a bowl of cooked vegetables and a pot of split pea soup. The second course was two whole roasted chickens with side dishes of a rice casserole and raw carrot salad. The third course was stuffed cabbage made from four heads of cabbage and five pounds of beef. And there was a fourth course and a fifth and a sixth. An amazing amount of food. According to the rules of the contest, Every last piece of, bread, of food had to be consumed except for the bones. There was no limit on how much you could drink. Talking during the meal was absolutely forbidden, and neither of the contestants could say anything to the other except for one line. Can you please pass the salt? Anyone violating the rules, and of course anyone saying that, sending anything else was automatically disqualified. We were given two days to prepare for the contest. And the big day arrived. And when it started, I didn't appreciate my friend's ability to eat. As the Nazi bear devoured her food, my friend ate slowly, methodically. The Nazi quickly gained ground, moving on to a third course, and the fourth, while my friend ate slowly. I'll spare you the details. It was terrible. They had portions of food even outside the camp were considered unreal. Around the fourth course, the Nazi looked exhausted. You could see she was eating just to win. As for my friend, she looked like she was enjoying every bite. The scene became pitiful. They were finishing the sixth course, and my friend called me over and whispered something. And one of the Nazis' friends called out, She's disqualified. According to the rules, it's forbidden to talk to anyone. The judge asked for an explanation, and I told the judge, all she wanted was, she wanted more stuffed cabbage because it was so delicious. The Nazi looked at her, threw down her fork and said, I'm dropping out of this contest. I'll never win. I'm about to pass out. And that skinny little crony thing is asking for more stuffed cabbage? I don't have a chance. I'm going to give up. You should have heard the cheers that rang out. We carried our friend out to recover. On the way, someone asked me, why was that stuffed cabbage so important to her in the middle of the contest? Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. And the girl who was the contestant said, that's not what I said. What I said was, I can't eat anymore even if my life depends on it. But her friend changed the line so that she wouldn't give up. And she was able to outwit the Nazi. And this is, ladies and gentlemen, what we have to do. We're in a contest right now, many of us, of mental survival, of physical survival. And we're dueling with the Sahara. We can't give in. We have to outmaneuver him, just like this story. We have to work on our minds and give ourselves chizik. We have to give each other chizik so that we don't fall trapped and you know, throw the towel in like the Nazi was going to. Here's an individual who saw her friend, she was going down, and what she did was, she completely changed the line, making the Nazi completely faked out, and the Nazi quit. So we can't quit. I want to share another story with you before we get into tonight's information. Um, beautiful story, by the way. Yigal Yaron, who served in the IDF for over 25 years, although many Israeli soldiers usually would retire earlier, he went into his mid-50s, he was a career officer. He wanted to retire. Now, he was given an operation, he had to go into Hezbollah land and, and um, deal with a certain town that was constantly sending rockets into Israel. And so it was a very dangerous mission. And what happened was, they went in there and they liquidated the area, but unfortunately he was taken hostage by the Arabs. And the Israeli army sent in a, uh, a force that was able to, re- re- you know, uh, find him and rescue him. Unfortunately, he was beaten very hard by the Arabs and tortured. 
after he was saved from that episode, he decided, you know what, 25 years is enough, it's, in, it's enough for me. The IDF really liked him a lot, didn't want him to retire. So they said to him, we'll give you a desk job, we'll get you off the front lines. He said, no, I'm done. You know what, I have three children at home, I want to spend time with them. Two day, a few days later after he retired from the IDF, he was taking a walk, a leisurely walk, now that he was a civilian near his home in Netanya, when a van pulled up next to him and a group of Israeli soldiers told him, in Hebrew, get inside. They said, we have orders to bring you back to headquarters. He was curious about what it was about, but he didn't care. He didn't resist and he entered. As soon as he got in, he realized he made a terrible mistake. Even though they were dressed as Israeli soldiers, they were Palestinian terrorists because they were all talking Hebrew, but dressed in IDF uniforms. And what happened was, after driving for a while, they shouted at him in Arabic, they carried him into a concealed basement. He feared for his life. In all probability, they wanted revenge and now they were going to kill him. They were young and he feared bloodthirsty as well. And now he's taken into a room where he was blindfolded and his hands were tied behind his back. And he started to whack him. And he started to fight, uh, you know, throw fisticuffs at him. And he started to punch him. And he started to bleed. And he didn't know what, how it was going to happen. They were trying to get him to break and give out secrets of the IDF. <clears throat> Even though the kidnappers hit him, he didn't answer their questions. They seemed to be holding back somewhat. Yigal was quite relieved that the first line of questioning had ended. Looking around the room, he noticed that the captors had left the door open a little bit. They probably wanted him to keep an eye on him. Excuse me. Quietly, he moved his chair over, and he tried to listen to what they were saying, hoping that maybe he'd pick up a clue what they wanted. He had decided, no matter what, I'm not going to give away any secrets of the Jewish state. And guess what happened? As he moved his, he was able to move his chair with his hands tied behind him, he heard something amazing. He heard those captors speaking Hebrew, and they were laughing in the hallway. And guess what? It turned out to be that it was IDF officers. And the whole thing was rigged, because what happened was, they were very nervous. Why did this guy who was 25 years in the IDF suddenly retire? Perhaps he was a mole. Perhaps he was a, uh, a spy for the Arabs. So they decided to test him, to see if he was the real McCoy or not. And when he didn't give away any state secrets, he came to the realization that it was just all a hoax by the IDF to test him. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what's happening with us now. We're being tested by Hashem. Will we be able to take the punches? Will we be able to be strong and have the endurance to go on? And that's what we need here. We need to learn from Yigal Yaron, no matter what. We don't give up, we don't quit. Okay, let's get into tonight's major theme, and that is dating. We need a strategy. So let's start with a joke. Three men, the Italian Giovanni, Isaac the Jew, and Joe the Polak, are sentenced to 20 years in prison. The warden asks each one, you're allowed to take one thing with you into the prison cell. What would you like? So Giovanni, the Italian, says to the warden, Mr. Warden, I'd like a wife. And the warden says, Giovanni, granted. Isaac, the Jew, says, I'd like a cell phone with a charger. And the warden says, granted. Joe, the Polak, asks for a case of cigarettes. And the warden says, granted. The cells are then locked. 20 years go by. After 20 years, the cells are unlocked. Giovanni the Italian comes out from the cell with his wife and 12 children. Thank you so much, he says to the warden. I'm so happy. I have a great wife and 12 wonderful bambinos. Isaac comes out and he says, thank you so much. In the 12 years that I was in, in, the, in the prison, I called my friends on Wall Street, made tremendous trades. I'm a multimillionaire. And lastly, Joel the Polish guy comes out and he says, he asked for a case of cigarettes. He says, sir, can you spare a match? What's the moral of the story, ladies and gentlemen? If we don't have a plan, 
we're going to fail. As they say, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. We need a plan how to date effectively. So here's our six practical tools for fueling change from how we can take a lesson from a car before we go on a road trip. One, in life or in our goals, we need a map and we need a GPS. What is our destination? And we'll get into that tonight. We're going to determine our individual destinations. Where am I going? Lay out your long-term goals and then decide how will I reach those goals. It's not just about luck. There's a way to get everything done practically and I'll show you tonight. Two, we look for road signs when we go on a road trip. Don't choose a completely unmarked path. You're going to get lost. Make sure that the road that you take has road markers. Seek out guidance and direction. Look to Rebbe's, dating mentors, dating coaches. Ask for advice. Don't be alone. Don't isolate yourself because you're going to make mistakes. Three, motor oil. That is determination. Motor oil, before you leave for a long road trip, you check the hood to make sure you have enough motor oil, which equates to our life, and that means determination. To succeed is the oil. Determination to succeed is the oil that keeps our engines in good shape. So we need determination. We need not to give up. We need to be mitchazek ourselves. Four, we need an emergency kit containing first aid, such as don't let a flat tire sabotage your trip. Anticipate setbacks and bring along the necessary kalim, which is what's important. Five, Powerade and energy bars. A long trip can be relax, can be taxing. If you feel run down in the course of the trip, you're going to need some energy. And that is imuna and inspiration. So make sure you surround yourself with the right rebbies, with the right people who inspire you, with the right friends. And lastly, a cell phone. Don't leave home without the cell phone. It's essential to have a way to contact people in case there's an emergency. And what does that mean for us in our life? The road of life should not be traveled alone. Let Hashem be your partner. Let Him be your guide. Let Him be your protector. Call out to Hashem because He's always there for help. I'd like to share a beautiful poem that Zelik Piskin says he saw in 1964. Zelik Piskin is an amazing author. I've read many of his books. I've quoted much of his work. He's a tremendous scholar, an Ish HaTorah scholar, a person who's probably written 30, 40 books. He writes something fascinating. And he writes like this, In 1964, I read a poem that moved me greatly. It was written by the late Rabbi Yahu Dessler in Hebrew and was published in the third volume of his classic work, Miftav Milyahu. And this is what he wrote. The past is only memories. The future is but only hopes. Focus on the present, for that is where your life really is. And ladies and gentlemen, the message that I have for you is focus on now, not what happened in the past and not in the future. And that's so important. Realize that the present is so important. And he continues and he tells us that having enough for today gives us an abundant life today. People worry, what's going to be tomorrow? Will I have money? Will I have food? Will I have a roof over my head? No, 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 no. The good news is that no one has to worry. Worry doesn't help you. Planning and thinking clearly about what you can do can be most beneficial. And what does abundance mean? In Hebrew, we call it shefa. At the simplest level, abundance means you have what you need right now. Baruch Hashem, you have a house, you have food, you have family, you have friends, you have health, you're, you're very wealthy. Most people can create a sense of abundance by consistently living one day at a time. And we've never had that more apropos than in our lives now. We're going to live one day at a time. Are my basic needs being met right now? That's the only question you need to ask yourself. Having enough for today gives you abundance for today. Imagine how much life will benefit from just living with this attitude alone. Now let's get into the nitty-gritty of dating. Before I get into how to get things done, let's analyze the mistakes people are making and avoid those mistakes ourselves. We don't want to go down that trap. So let's start with an interesting article. Why are so many young Jewish couples divorcing? Number one, disposable society. 
Who fixes anything anymore? Toaster ovens, microwaves and alarm clocks are just tossed out as soon as there's anything wrong with them. New is always better. Our kids lose their clothing knowing there'll just be another one around the corner. They go to camp, they lose dozens of things and they think they just can be replaced. That thinking has seeped into our attitudes, into our dating attitudes, in our marital attitudes. You know, you hear so people talk at social events and say, what's the big deal? I'll get a divorce and just find someone else. There are a lot of people out there. Look at all my friends. Okay. Good, I just need to check that. Because what happens is when we see relationships as disposable, whether they are friendships or, or marriage, the sacred bond becomes easily unglued. When we don't see it as something that's permanent and willing to fight for it, then it becomes unglued. We lose the ability to value something which is so precious as marriage and the people that are in our lives. That mindset that it doesn't pay to fix things and that newer is better impacts our lives, lessening the incredible kedusha and sacred value, which is marriage. We need to value out the people in our lives and the people and, and, and that are part of our lives. So that's one. Number two, instant gratification. Unfortunately, WhatsApp and texting and emails has brought, a, uh, have brought us to that level of expecting an immediate response. We ask ourselves, what's taking so long? Where's the response? Whereas years ago, if you took pictures in the camera, you used to go to the photo store, drop off the canister, wait three or four days until you got the photo. Who knows of anything like that today? You take a picture in New York and your friend in Jerusalem or London sees it two seconds later on WhatsApp or email. So we're used to having things at our fingertips right away. And now that mindset has seeped into our dating life. If I don't get what I want right away, well, it's not worth it. So I won't fight for it. I won't try to maintain the relationship. I won't try to fix myself. I can't tell you how many clients that I have that I've had to get involved and slow them down, speak to the other side all the time and maintain it. Baruch Hashem, thank God, Hashem is great. We had eight engagements in the last four, four to six weeks, all in the corona period. It could be done. It's just a matter of getting involved, getting the right people involved. Sometimes it's so important to get someone involved that knows what they're doing so they can help and assess. Uh, just because I always sometimes forget, if anyone needs me out there, you can write it down right now. My personal cell phone number is 305-206-1916, anywhere in the world, because this is also going on tour anytime. If you have any questions or issues on dating, any questions or issues on Shalom Bias, you can reach me or drjackcohen18 at gmail.com on WhatsApp or cell phone, whatever it is. But that's it. You need to make sure that you hook up with someone who can help you so you don't lose something which is valuable and precious. Next, FOMO, fear of missing out. People are so afraid of missing out. You see parties posted online, other people's vacations, other people's steak dinners, and you think someone else has it better. And you start wondering, you know what, my wife's not so good, my husband's not so good. They have it better, they vacation more, they do this and they do that. Be, be very, very careful with that. You have to, be, you have to always be concerned. Don't always look at the think the grass is greener on the other side because they have their share of wolves. Four, we've become part of a disconnected world. Technology has connected us, but also brought us further apart. We talk much less. We text, which is one way. Uh, we don't communicate like we used to. We don't have deep, meaningful conversations. And oftentimes, when I'm dealing with clients, I have to deal with this, where I have to tell people, you know what? You're not maintaining a substantial conversation. You're not delving. You're not demonstrating your vulnerability. You're not exposing yourself. This is because of this mentality of not having to, because if I text you or WhatsApp you, I'm not getting into a discussion which is two-way. It's one way. I may want to just hold off and not answer you right away. So that's very important. Just give me a second. I want to get some water. I'll be right back.
Okay, I'm back. All right, 10 dating myths that people are making a mistake with. Number one, myth number one, the more people I go out with, the better a chance I'll have of meeting Mr. or Miss Wright. Terrible attitude. This has becomes a prescription for dating burnout. And you know what? It's not the way to go. The best way to go is to have more of a, of a micro uh, uh, type of a directed approach to dating, where you create a top 10 list. I'm going to get into that. So you don't waste time. The more you go out with people, as random as it gets, the more burnt out you get from the whole process. And then you just become very discouraged. It, rather, the better way to go is to date less, but date more efficiently. Date more with, efficient, with efficiency, more with precision. More to determine what's right for me. You'll feel a lot less discouraged this way. And you'll be much more stronger and much more emotionally up and fit for the challenge. Number two, the smartest and prettiest women get married first. That's not true. Many of these women have happily married friends who might be regarded as less attractive, but woman who's very accomplished or attractive may receive more offers, but many of them may not be suitable for her because her checklist is longer and her wish list is much longer. A woman who's dating for marriage should be focused on finding the right man and it doesn't bear any relationship to her beauty. And is a match for everyone. Number three, myth number three, if there were more social events, I would have been married a long time ago. That's not true. Especially in the tri-state area with many social events. Oftentimes these social events are so big that people only congregate with their friends and they don't really meet anyone. So it doesn't really reflect on success in terms of dating. Number four, if you date for a long time, it means you really know what you're doing. Boy, is that false. Because if that was the case, why aren't you married? If you're dating for a long time, perhaps, and it's not working, perhaps you might want to consider listening to Einstein. If, you know, you're doing something for a long, many times, as he says, insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting a different result. So perhaps there's a need for a change in the way, your repertoire, in the way you're doing things. So you want to consider perhaps going to a mentor or a coach, having, I, I do this all the time, I analyze people's dating uh, approach, people's per- performance on dates, people's d- attitude towards dates, many times changes are necessary in order to be able to bring in some success. Five, if things don't click on the first date, you're probably not right for each other. No, that's wrong. First of all, oftentimes on the first date, it's, imp- it's possible to get a good sense that you and your date are not right for each other if either you don't have compatible values or goals, you, don't, you want different things out of life, you have a strong distaste for their personality, or it's physically and emotionally difficult for you to sit through the day because you're so different. Those would be valid reasons. However, in most cases, it's virtually impossible to know if the person is right for you. It often takes a few dates to realize that you're starting to connect. Oftentimes people are nervous. They're not themselves. They're not feeling well. They have things on their mind. One date, just not do it. Two or three, you've got to give it a chance. Unless you see the values are totally incompatible or you have completely different expectations out of life, or physically it just doesn't cut it for you. Myth number six, first impressions about a blind date are always correct. It's part of human nature that people aren't always themselves when they meet someone new. People are slow sometimes to warm up right away and become more comfortable for a second or third date. So you gotta give it time. Myth number seven, if we date longer, the qualities that bother me about the other person will get worked out. No, no, and no, no. You have to understand something. Some people have to experience this a few times before they realize the pattern they're in. You can't change anyone. You can only change yourself. I've seen people date 10 months, 12 months, 16 months, thinking the longer they go out, 
the better it will get. No. If it's not getting right at a fairly right early time, between three, six, seven weeks, something is wrong. Either you have to fix it, or you have to break up that relationship. Uh, <clears throat> another one is, it doesn't matter if most of my friends and family don't like the person that I'm crazy about. You don't understand him or her, and your opinion is the only one that matters. Wrong. Be careful. When your friends or family or significant others in your life are making comments that there's something that doesn't that smells fishy about the person that you're dating, and you're hearing it from people that love you and care about you and don't want you to make mistakes, pay attention. Oftentimes, people get so fogged into that into the relationship that they don't pay attention until it's too late, and then they realize that their loved ones or their relatives that wanted to warn them and they didn't listen. So be careful. So it's very important also to, to, to take that into consideration. Now, I want to share a very important insight by John Gray. He wrote that book, Women Are From Venus and Men Are From Mars. He's a guy, a Gentile, but he came to the right conclusion, and this is a conclusion that we all have to come to. Physical chemistry alone is very short-lived. A man can easily be turned on by a seductive woman who promises gratification, physical, without any strings. For many men, just the opportunity for that causes physical chemistry. After a few brief encounters of physical passion, this chemistry will quickly dissipate. He writes, I was amazed as a counselor to discover something striking, and it happened again and again to many of my clients. Quite often women who are extremely attractive, who look like models and movie stars, and in some cases, which all share the same complaint. Their husbands were not sexually attracted to them. And he said, I was dumbfounded. I couldn't imagine any available man not being attracted to such gorgeous women. Yet it was true. And then he says, I came to realize why. These women had been pursued by men who were primarily sexually attracted to them, but didn't really ever get to know them. When a man feels sexual chemistry, quite often he thinks he knows a woman. He feels interested in her. He likes her. He thinks he loves her. The real test is whether he still likes and loves her after he gets to know her. Although it may feel like love, it's not. When a relationship passes the test of time, the love is real. And what is he getting down to? It's not about the physical. The physical means nothing. The physical, as we see from the National Enquirer, every week there's another Hollywood divorce that lasted 30 or 60 days. We're interested in seichel. We're interested in... We're going to date with our heads. Which means we're looking for midos. We're looking for character. We're looking for relationships of substance. And that depends on communication skills, which we're going to get into later. These people who stopped being attracted to their partners didn't betray each other. Both partners were responsible. They put too much emphasis on the physical aspect of the relationship and didn't create the opportunity to know and love each other to discover if they were true soulmates. When physical chemistry, listen to what he says, is not backed up by chemistry in the mind, chemistry in the heart and soul, it cannot last or grow over time. Once the pleasures and passions of the body are experienced without corresponding passions of the mind, heart and soul, the physical chemistry will dissipate. Baruch Hashem, I'm privileged to be able to deal with so many people of the Baruch Hashem of the from world, from all aspects, but occasionally because my stuff gets out there, I do get a lot of phone calls from people that are not from, from people who are secular, who have lived with partners. They all go down the same road of discouragement, they move out from each other, they end up not liking each other, it never goes anywhere. You can't show me a case where anything, any of these scenarios ever went to a, a marriage. It never works out. It never works out. Physical attraction can be sustained for a lifetime only, this person writes, John Gray, when it springs from chemistry of the mind, heart, and soul. And since we're Jews, that's critical to us as we believe in depth. Let me read you a beautiful poem which really cements that concept. 
Her nose is too long, her lips are too wide, I couldn't possibly take that girl for a bride. She jabbers out questions, she laughs too loud, she's not that smart, and she blends in with the crowd. What's that that you say, I should give that girl a chance? Okay, if you say so. I won't trust my first glance. Well, what do you know? Boy, am I ever surprised. She has so many pluses that were somehow disguised. Her laugh sounds so charming, her questions so dear, her brightness was hidden, her modesty so sincere. I was so arrogant with all my endless demands. Now I am humbled to see the work of Hashem's hands. I'll always be grateful for such a wonderful wife whose menschlichkeit enriched the days of my life. Now I'm a new father and I have to disclose my precious baby has a gorgeous long nose. How important it is not to just to value the exterior. It's a combination of everything, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, physical attraction is necessary, but it doesn't have to be a cosmopolitan model and a GQ cover guy. You need to also get into the depths. You need to work on making sure that I know what I need. So let's get together now and how... Let's start... Let's seg into this top 10 listing. The dating process has become cloaked in mystery. Should I judge with my emotions or my head? What should I do? And things have gotten progressively more confusing. So we say that we're Jews, we date with our heads. And when we ask the million dollar question, why do you think you're not married? We get the stock answer, I just haven't met my soulmate or my beshert yet. But we've yet to meet anyone who couldn't do more to get the process going a little bit more faster. There are many obstacles that people don't realize are standing in their way. For some people, they simply need to meet more people. They're not networking enough. For other people, they may be looking for a diamond rather than a diamond in the rough. Some have commitment issues. Some have emotional burdens. Or an inability to share their inner selves, which causes people to misjudge them. Understanding the specific obstacle that's staying in our way is the first step to removing that obstacle. We'll talk about some of those tonight. So... We have to first understand the difference between a need and a want. A need is a character trait. We're going to want to create a top 10 list of needs, not wants. And I'll explain what wants are and what needs are very in a, in a few moments. Let me get into that. Needs, and I was gonna, I'm going to give you some examples very soon, are things like warm, kind, considerate, has a Rebbe, generous, emotionally balanced, someone who is kind, someone who is, doesn't have anger issues, someone who is emotionally in, av- available and stable, someone who has loyalty. We're going to get into that a little bit. I'm going to give you some, some explanations. Versus a want, a want is very different. A want is superficial. Tall, good-looking, blonde, blue eyes, wealthy, has two houses, goes away to Sukkot for, 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 you know, to Israel. Those are wants. Wants are superficial. Wants won't always make you happy. Let me just show you, let me read you two, I, Baruch Hashem, I create top ten lists for all my clients because I help them. One of the things that I like to do is I listen to them talk about their history and as they're talking about themselves, I'm scribbling out their top ten lists. That's the bracha that my Rebbe Ravik de Miller gave me to be able to understand people rather easily. So here's a girl's top ten list that I just created today. She, we did a video WhatsApp consultation. Number one, has a Rebbe. I'm very big into that. I like to see guys, um, every guy have a Rebbe or a mentor. When you get married, if there's an issue with the marriage, or there's a problem, who will you go to for advice and counsel? So I expect that there should be a Rebbe in the system. Next. 
He's got to be a guy who's growing on growing spiritually and personally, that he's got a self-growth program, that he's not stale, that he's not just flat or parv. Number three, um, he should be a person who's kind and considerate. Four, family's number one. In her case, she was worried about panasa, so I said to her, he's got to be dependable and have a panasa path. Six, loyal. Seven, generous. That's so important. You know, I always tell girls, there are three things that I want you to look out for. That he should kaas, anger, Kaptan is a person that should be not inflexible, but flexible. And Kamtan, cheap. So generous, a lack of anger, and a person who is, doesn't, and who's flexible are the three key things that a girl should always look out for. And if you see a red flag in any of those three, run away. Next, communicative. She needed someone who spoke to her and he was always there. No anger issues and Simcha Sechayim. To me, Simcha Sechayim is another critical one that I almost have in every top ten list that I put forward. A lifetime, a marriage is a lifetime of memories and a relationship. You need someone who's optimistic. You need someone who looks at the world as the, the glass half full. So it's important that you ensure that you get someone who's got that Simcha Sechayim. Now here's a guy who came to me, a Hasidish guy by the way, with his parents and we created this top ten list. Number one, Simcha Sechayim, very important. Number two, he needed he was very quiet, so I, he needed a good communicator as a wife. Number three, you're a Shemaim, that was very important to him. Four, family is number one. Five, uh, Balabatish, he was he was into spitz. He liked good things. He liked travel. He needed a wife who can understand and appreciate that that lifestyle. Six, emotionally balanced and healthy. That was very important. Seven, put together. Eight, loyal. Nine, respectful and considerate. So, and then now let me just give you some other ideas of top 10 lists uh, in terms of what you could, you know, put down into a top 10 list. Things like authentic, ayin tov, care for balashin hara, good relationship with friends. If you notice, these are the needs. 10 top lists consi- can, you know, consists of 10 needs that are basically midos. That's what's important. That's what you need to live with. That's what you need a partner who can, you know, integrate with you, has goals for the future, helpful, refined, low-key, self-sacrificing, more ruchnis and gashmias, sincere, slow to anger, strong-willed, thoughtful, tolerant, willing to support a family, you're a shemaim. I think in this, in this corona era, what we've learned most importantly, what's important in our lives, the money, forget about it. You see now, it's important, yes, we need to survive, but we see what it means, the value of life. And that means that we need to really concern ourselves with character. Character means I'm looking for people that are loving, generous, more patient, forgiving, more understanding, uh, more other people directed, more considerate, more passionate, more sensitive, more focused. And I'm staying away from negative personality traits, which could be acidic to a lifetime of living with someone. Their Eretz Kadmala Torah, good behavior comes before Torah. Okay, uh, watch out for a self-centered person who views everything in terms of how it affects them rather than it affects the other person. That's so important. Look out for that. That's so very important. We don't want self-centered people. And now, let's talk about change. Can I expect to date someone on the consideration that they'll change? And I'm going to tell you a very important piece of advice. You can't change the other person. You can only change yourself and your reaction to the other person. Don't go into a relationship thinking that I'm going to change someone. I'm not. You're not going to change them because guess what? Their plan is to change you. And now we have a situation which is a deadlock. 
If a person thinks that they're going to change anyone, it's wrong. The only person you can you change is yourself. And today I'm going to tell you the changes that I want you to make in yourselves so that you can have the best opportunity to succeed in dating. Okay, here we go. We need to first change our outlooks. How about this one? Here's a story. Why age is just a number. Written by Shala, written by a person who wants to uh, tell us about how give me a second. A girl, how she got married. Growing up in a secular home which was not religious in Ohio, I always had a sense something was missing. After exploring my spirituality, I decided to become religious. I spent a year in seminary in Eretz Yisrael. So I, when the year came to an end, I came home, I packed my bags. In the process of becoming religious, I had to do a lot of serious soul-searching and self-reflection. Entering into Shidduchim at 24, I had a pretty clear picture of the kind of man I hoped to marry. Someone that was nice, an earner-learner, who shared my values. I'm so sorry. I'll get some water. I'll be right back. I'm a little dry. So, her, decide, her decision was to marry a nice, smart, earner learner who shared my values. Because I had, beca- I had done a lot of self-discovery in my tshuva process, I knew I wanted to date someone like me, secure in his Yiddishkeit, and firm in his Anashkafas. I didn't feel comfortable dating someone who was in transition, that hadn't arrived spiritually, so to speak. It was also important to me that I marry someone who was mature, emotionally aware, and stable. All good qualities. I told Mama Shpia and others who read me the Shidduch that I was perfectly comfortable dating someone older. Very important to be open-minded. I assumed someone with a little bit more life experience is more likely to have the qualities I was searching for. I met singles at Shabbos tables by visiting different families. I followed up with Shatchanim. This is the Heshtadus that she did. I attended Sherem on dating and marriage, investing in my personal growth as I continued to search for my Bisher. After two years, after coming home from seminary, I dated a handful of Bachram. But it was disappointing and painful. I learned from them. I stayed positive. I dived endlessly for clarity. As Hanukkah neared, I was invited to a party being hosted by a rabbi in Rebetzin in my neighborhood. I got to know. When I knocked on the door, the Rebetzin looked a little surprised. Wow, you're early, she remarked. I thought I showed up 15 minutes early, but it intended to help. I guess she didn't get the text, she said. She warmly invited me in. Apparently, they had decided to make it an hour later. After about 20 minutes later, the doorbell rang. In stepped Hirsch, a man who, like me, clearly didn't get the text that the time has changed. The moment I saw him, I was struck with a feeling that he looks like a very special person. Realizing his error, he rolled up his sleeves and offered to help. We awkwardly introduced ourselves and quietly set up, helping the host. We barely said a word to each other during the party, but I couldn't just shake the strange inner feeling that this guy was a very special guy. The next day I called up the Rebbetzin inquiring about Hirsch. She told me that he too had called inquiring about her. I learned that Hirsch was a 30-year-old Baal Tshuva who was learning full-time. I was 26, 12 years his junior. But the age difference didn't concern me. I knew I wanted a mature guy. And if that maturity and clear sense of self came with a 12-year age difference, I was fine with that. Although I was looking for an earner learner, I discovered through inquiries that Hirsch had a strong work ethic, was diligent in his studies in the base medrash, and had recently started actively searching for job opportunities. This guy was go get him. He was a hustler, but in a nice way. You know, he met his responsibilities. Both Hirsch and I gave the green light. 
and went on a first date the following week. Despite the feeling I got when I first saw him, I was nervous. I knew I had to come back to earth, get to know him. Hirsch surpassed my expectations. He was sweet, smart, and certain of himself. Our parents were more concerned with his full-time status as a student. We married after a short three-month engagement and had built a beautiful Jewish home. What are the lessons to be learned from here, ladies and gentlemen? And here are her thoughts as she looks back at her life. Number one, age is just a number, so don't obsess with it. Two, look at the person's work ethic, not their title. At first, my husband worried that I would be scared off by the fact that he didn't find a job. But after I learned about his work ethic and learning and his diligence in job hunting, I knew he would work hard to support his family. Today, my husband is a successful business entrepreneur. As a Baal Chuba, he had invested time in his Torah learning in his 30s, and he wasn't employed, but he put his time in and he was a masmid in learning. Instead of scaring me off, it really made me admire how much Torah and Yiddishkeit meant to him. When you open your mind and focus on values and midos, rather than getting hung up on superficial stuff, the doors of Mazel and Bracha are more likely to be open for you. So that's a very important lesson that we want to learn. Let's be open-minded. Let's stay open-minded. And one thing that I want... Now we're in the toolbox zone. So if you have a pen and paper, you should be writing. Here's a takeaway. So many people, and I want to talk about myself, come in to me with negative self-talk. They mull over their mistakes and become paralyzed by hopelessness. We've got to do a better job of talking to ourselves positively, ladies and gentlemen. We have to believe in ourselves. Okay? It's important to talk to ourselves in a positive way. I can do this. I can be successful. Right? Samach Sedek says, think good, it's going to be good. So what are the ingredients for a successful marriage? And here we go. We've got to think about the other person. That's so important. Rav Deslach says, Imenali That's the key. You've got to think about the other person. You've got to be an other person-oriented individual. A successful marriage depends more on being the right person than finding the right person. You can be a great person and marry a bad person and you can raise that person. And conversely, you can take a great person and make them terrible. You can bring out the best in a person by being a great mashpia to them in a marriage. Or if you treat the right person the wrong way, you can turn that person into a horrible individual. Right? So it's so important. Marriage is not about keeping score, who's going to give more, who's going to give less. Because we said that's, all, that's what leads to divorce. Mature adults give and receive without tallying points. It's great to marry someone you love. This is a very important point, ladies and gentlemen. It's great to marry someone you love, but it's more important to love the person you marry. The idea is, choose your love, and then love your choice. You made the decision, now go to work, roll up your sleeves, and do your best to love that choice that you made, because that's critical to being happy. Love is a feeling, marriage is a contract, and a relationship is work. So don't think you're just going to cruise. Keep your eye on the goal line. Your goal is to make your marriage the best one. Do what you got to do to achieve that goal. This is the time now to work on these qualities. The best way to make a marriage work is to concentrate on people's positive qualities. Don't become a, a, a nudnik that looks for people's negative. Be positive. Smile. Be happy. If you just smile all the time and you superficially create something, you'll become that. Unfortunately, but it's so true, people don't like it. Fake it until you make it. Until the Rambam tells us clearly that if you take on a midah that's not part of you, and you do a chalot shema, eventually you'll internalize it, and it'll become part of you. So what are the things to look out for that are obstacles in dating? Let go of the idea that you're going to find 100% of what you're looking for in the opposite sex. No one is perfect, so make sure you understand that. Two, let go of some hours at work. 
or whatever that's keeping you so busy. People want to get married, but they seem to be so busy. I had a client once who told me, she won't take any calls from a boy after 9 p.m. I said, what? This is the most important thing right now in your life. you got to make yourself available. Next, let go of thinking that you're in this alone. While ultimately you decide who you'll spend the rest of your life with, go get help. Speak to dating mentors, coaches, rabbis, rebbitsons, mashpiyim. Four, let go, of the, the, let go of being so hard on yourself. Don't blame yourself for not getting engaged yet. It's not your problem. Hashem will take care of it, but you've got to make sure you're doing all that you can to change and become the best person you can. Very important, let go of ingratitude. So I make everyone that I work with create a gratitude list and say it every day. Same thing I do every day for the last 20-something years. Very important to have gratitude and to actually speak it out and read that gratitude card. It's so important. If you need a copy, just you know, send me a shout. 305-206-1916. Six, let go of you need for something to happen immediately. Forget about it. Don't put any timetables on anything. I had a client who went ahead and scheduled a wedding, wasn't even dating anybody. She said, I'm getting married on that day. Unfortunately, she had to cancel it. But don't put timetables on Hashem. Seven, let go of thinking that dating is going to be a quick, smooth process. Not always. It's okay. You got to be strong. You got to be ready for it. Next, take get the mindset of don't cause pain, give pleasure. Get into it now as a single. Become the kind of person that'll stand out because you'll be the person that's that people say, well, this person is amazing. They don't give pain, but they give pleasure. Sumerav asetov, David HaMelech says. That's the key. If, you can, if I can give you a five-word formula for being a great dater and a great marital partner, don't cause pain, but give pleasure. Next. Learn how to develop emotional intimacy. Much of the dating that fails is because people don't communicate effectively. They don't know how to engage in a discussion. They don't come prepared. And as a result, they don't know how to engage in deeply. They don't create a emotional intimacy. And unfortunately, the relationship just withers out and dies because people don't know how to communicate. So I'm going to give you a basic conversation, you know, toolbox list of how to, what to talk about. Family. Tell me about your family and friends. Tell me about your siblings. Tell me about your, your, their spouses. Tell me about your Shabbos experience. What are your parents like? Who are you closest to? What are your grandparents like? Where's your family from? Who are your closest friends? What are they like? What do you have in common? What qualities do you look for in a friend? Camps, career goals, community, where do you live, your shul, interests. What are your hobbies? What books do you like to read? What do you like to do for fun? Sha'urim. Do you do any chesed? That's an important one. I like to see that question dealt with. Israel. How was your Israel experience? Your Israel trip? Your Israel seminary? Or your yeshiva? Organizations? Travel? Politics? Imuna. Which rabbi most inspires you? Personality? What are you most proud of? Uh, what do you feel are the most, your most meaningful accomplishments? Goals? Priorities? Why do you want to get married? What are you looking for in a partner? Parenting, what kind of parent would you be? Would you do it the same way as your parents did it? Reducing baggage. It's very important to realize that if you have issues from the past, don't think you're going to take those issues into marriage and you're going to... You're going to deal with them. It doesn't work that way. If there's anything emotional that's bothering you, anything psychological that's bothering you, deal with it now. 
Deal with it now and become the best person that you can become. If there's any hang-ups or, any, or anything that needs to be dealt with, that needs a mentor, who needs a coach, who needs a therapist, who needs a social worker, absolutely important to be, should be reduce that baggage. Because it becomes very clear that when you're going to, when you're dating, people eventually, you can't hide it. Eventually it comes out that there's something going on and, um, and that person can then look to other people for guidance. Examine your expectations. Are they unrealistic? You may want someone great looking, but perhaps you need to lose a few pounds. Or maybe you have, despite your fabulous looks, you're, dist- you're destined for someone who's maybe not so good looking, but has a great attitude. Don't box yourself in. Open your horizons. Decide that you know what you're looking for and what you need. Maybe you're not ready for marriage. Maybe you need a little bit more chizak from someone to help you get there. Maybe you're afraid to give up your independence. Maybe you don't trust other people. So you have to really think about that and become more open-minded. As people get older, it's not about, if I'm in my 30s now, it's not about what I wanted when I was in my 20s. Now I'm more realistic. I want a family. I want children. I want a legacy to leave behind. It's tragic to tell you how many people come to me, men and, and, and more women sometimes, but how many men come to me in their high 50s and 60s, never married, and asking me to find them women in their 40s and 30s because they want to finally start a family. Get it together while you're young and reassess your priorities. That's so important. Next, don't compare yourself to anyone else. You are beautiful. You are, you are who you are. You are very special. So remember that. Everyone is unique and has something, a special, unique role to fulfill in this world. Okay. Work on your self-esteem. That's very, very important. What is it that's good, at, that something unique about you? And that's what I want you to work on. If you're a great sportsman, that's your strength. If you're great in art, or you're great in technology, you're great in music, it's important because one of the things, the key areas that I see with many of the individuals that I help with is a lack of self-esteem. I'm dealing with a girl in Yerushalayim right now who has horrible self-esteem and we're working on it now. And I've gotten her to be able to identify some key areas. I gave her a list of talents, 62, uh, a list of 62 talents, and she ended up having... We were able to isolate 35 out of those 60 that she had that she never gave herself any kind of, you know, pat on the back for. She never really owned up to them, to them. And I also gave her a list of abilities, about 40 abilities. And we came to the logical conclusion that she was worth more and valued more than others. So you have to come and very, very important work on that self-esteem area. Let me just get to this. Okay. Now, lastly, many people always ask me, should I get engaged at Miss, Miss X or Mr. Y? So I'm going to give you a cheat list. Number one, out of the top ten list that is created for you, I really prefer if a third party creates it for you because you're not as subjective as an objective. That's why I do so many of them. If you need that help, reach out to me. Does the person that I'm dating, that I'm considering getting engaged to, have at least six out of ten qualities I listed? We in, in Judaism and we create a halacha, we go after the majority. So does that person have at least the majority of the ten that I'm looking for? Two, if they would never change, would I still want to get married to them? Very important question. Three, do we have the same outlook on life? Are we looking at life with the same hashkafa or mishkafayim, glasses? Four, do we have common goals? If I'm looking to prance around the world and travel, and my wife wants to sit home, we have a problem. I had a, a client, a 25-year-old girl from Belgium, whose husband in the first year racked up $160,000 on her credit cards because he had to get away every third Shabbos. So, which she was a lifestyle that she didn't share at all. She never got to know him. She never really did her due diligence. She didn't create a top 10 list. It was a ter- terrible mess. So as they say, if you fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. Next, 
Do I know what's important to him or her? I have a client right now, which I've been working with, that when I first, and she went out seven times, she couldn't tell me anything about what was important to him or her. Not his family, not his values, not what he was looking for for the future. That means the question is, what have you been doing while you've been dating? Next. Do we share expectations in the way we'll raise a family and have, make a living? It's very important. If you want two kids and you want six, we have a problem. Uh, and how will we do that? And who's going to work? You have to talk about do we compliment each other intellectually? That comes up often. You know, if you're a college graduate or you have a post-college degree, you're going to need someone who can understand you and on your level to some extent. Is that poet person emotionally healthy? How often have I encountered clients who have had problems, have had divorces, or had to go for divorces because the individuals that they were married to were not there healthy. Their light bulbs were not all screwed in. So you have to make sure that you really thoroughly check it out when you're dating. 11. Have I seen positive midos displayed and Derek Eretz? Key. As you've dated that person, were they nice, were they kind, were they considerate, or did they use obscene language, or were they, not, or they mean and hurtful? Twelve, do I look forward to being with that person? I often ask clients this who are not sure, and I, if they take a 20 or 30 seconds to answer that question, they've already gone in seven, eight, nine days, I say, boy, they have problems. Thirteen, do I find the person's appearance pleasing? That's important. To have a client who is divorced with five kids, who was pressured by certain individuals to marry a girl that he was never really physically attracted to, and never did get physically attracted to and they went to a divorce. So you always got to be physically attracted to the person. And it's got to be now. Don't think that, oh, I'll get more physically attracted to them. It should build up in dating if it hasn't hit right away. But it's important that you should be physically attracted to each other by the time you're engaged. Are they pleasant company? Do I enjoy their company? And most importantly, will that person bring out the best in me? That's how you know if that's a, a soulmate, if that's your bashert. Let me close with a beautiful story that I saw about Rabbi Wallerstein. Um, in, in, in regards to the concept of a shidduch can sometimes be as hard as splitting the sea, he talks about where he went to a wedding of one of his former classmates, uh, cl- uh, one of his former uh, students. Anyway, um, and sitting at his table was this classmate's brother who wasn't in his class. And that year, in eighth grade, this boy was expelled from the school. And he was sitting at the table, he was the brother of the chassan, and he was shaven, sitting with a Gentile oriental girl at this Jewish, you know, at this from wedding. And Rabbi, Hassan, Rabbi Wallstein, him, you know, started up a discussion. He felt really bad, he never got to really know him, he wasn't in his class, but he had been thrown out, and unfortunately he had gone off to Derek. And so when the chassan came out with the Kali, he says, Rabbi, Rabbi Wallstein grabbed him, he says, come, let's do a dance. And he started to dance, and they got, you know, started to chat. And, and this boy's name was Howie. He started trailing after Rabbi Wallerstein. He told him, Rabbi, did you know that I'm a Buddhist now? I traveled to India, and that's where I met my girlfriend. Rabbi Wallerstein understood. That's why his head was fully shaven. He said to him, you know what? I don't know much about Buddhism, but please come to my, to my Tuesday night class. Tell us a little bit about it. So Howie came that Tuesday night and started discussing all the merits of Buddhism. Rabbi Wallerstein allowed him to speak freely. And when he was done, the rabbi made a joke. You know what? If Buddha's a god, why is he so fat? Why can't he lose weight? Howie and the rabbi stayed in touch. And Howie came to Tuesday night class every week. Not long after, Howie dropped the girl and his Buddhist girlfriend, and they broke up. A few months later, Rabbi Wallerstein became close. He said, Howie, I'm going to Israel. Why don't you come with me, and I'll set you up to an yeshiva in Israel. It'll be great for you. It'll be really wonderful. Howie obliged, and two years after yeshiva, Howie was a changed person. He was no longer Howie. He was Chaim Simcha. He called Rabbi Wallerstein one day from Israel and asked him, Rabbi, I want to come home and find the shidduch in America. Rabbi Wallerstein said, no need to. Stay in Israel. Give it a few months. I have a feeling something will come up. 
If it doesn't work out, you'll come back to America, we'll look for a girl. A month later, Chaim called the rabbi, says, Rebbe, you won't believe it. One of the teachers here set me up, and I think she's such a nice girl, but she comes from a regular religious home. I'm worried she's not going to accept me. She's never seen what's underneath my shirt, all the tattoos. I've got tattoos on my arms, neck, and chest. I even wear a turtleneck on the hottest summer day in Israel, so I can make sure that no one can see them. Rabbi Walsin said, don't worry, have a in Hashem. Don't tell her yet. Go out a few times. And if you see there's a future, Hashem will take care of it. Maybe she'll understand. A couple of months later, it was time for Chaim to tell her. He took his leap of faith. He says, I have to tell you something. And he told her, please don't react right away. The girl thought, oh, he's going to propose for marriage. She urged him to continue. Then he pulled out his arm from his jacket sleeve and he showed her his tattoos. And he said, that's not the only tattoos I have. I also have them on my chest and my back. And she said something amazing. She took a breath and she said, I see only one tattoo. You're incredibly spiritual. Hashem's name is imprinted all over your neshama. That's the only tattoo that I see. And that's the most important thing. Don't worry about anything else. Chaim let out a sigh of relief. And by the way, he said, will you marry me? Today, he lives in Brain Brock with his beautiful children. Hashem split the sea for them. And Howie, or Chaim Simcha, took a leap of faith to end up where he is today. Ladies and gentlemen, I tried to give you a composite of a little bit of this and a little bit of that so that you can walk away today feeling empowered. We touched on a lot of subjects, certainly a lot of toolbox stuff that I gave you that you could start now to make effective changes in your life. Obviously, it's, 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 all, it's there. If you need more, you can always go to my, my, uh, my portal at Torah anytime. Just uh, look for Dr. Jack Cohen. Baruch Hashem, I think I have close to 380 lectures on dating. And especially if you want personal help, reach out to me. I'd be delighted to help you. In this, day, in this era of Corona, Baruch Hashem, quite a few people are reaching out to me. You can call me at 305-206-1916. I live right here in Brooklyn, New York, but I'm dealing with people throughout the world. Or email me at drjacko18 at gmail.com. If you'd like help with a top 10 list, a consultation on a, on a relationship you're in, help for the future, whatever it may be. Thank you so much for tuning in tonight. God bless you. Let's all stay safe. And a Rufu Shalema, especially, I want to shout out a Rufu Shalema to everyone who's sick from the coronavirus. They should speedily get better. And especially, I want to give a shout out to all the wonderful people on the front lines, the doctors, the nurses, Chaveirim, Ms. Askim, um, Shomrim, and especially Hatzalah for the incredible job you did nationwide and worldwide to take care of Kal Israel. Thank you, everyone. Have a wonderful day. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.